the 189th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City. This is the Saturday morning session of the 189th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. Members and officers of the church gather from all areas of the world to receive counsel and instruction from their church leaders. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Dallin H. Oaks, first counselor in the first presidency of the church, will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the Saturday morning session of the 189th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We extend a warm welcome to members and friends participating in the conference throughout the world, wherever you may be. President Russell M. Nelson, who presides at this conference, has asked me to conduct this session. The music for this session will be provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square under the direction of Mac Wilberg and Ryan Murphy with Richard Elliott and Andrew Unsworth at the organ. The choir opened this meeting with Now Let Us Rejoice and will now favor us with Press Forward Saints. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Stephen E. Snow of the Seventy, after which the choir will sing, There is Sunshine in My Soul Today.
Our Father in heaven, we give thanks uh, this morning for the privilege of gathering together as saints here in this hall and in chapels and homes around the world. We recognize the strength of gathering, and we pray that we'll gain strength from one another as we listen to and participate in this uh, conference session. We're grateful for our leaders. We pray for our prophet and his counselors and the members of the Twelve. We're grateful for all those who have made uh, this conference possible. We realize so many details need to be attended to, and we're grateful for all those who have rallied to help make this uh, a wonderful weekend. We pray for those who will bless us with music and invite the Spirit to be with us. We pray for those who will speak to us today, and we pray that our hearts will be open and that we will learn and and, uh, leave this uh, conference today uh, committed to do better in some way in our lives. These things we pray for, and we say in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
We will now be pleased to hear from Elder Ulysses Soares of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Sister Becky Craven, Second Counselor in the Young Women General Presidency. Elder Brooke P. Hales of the Seventy will then address us. My dear brothers and sisters, what a great joy is to be here together again in this general conference for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints under the direction of our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. I testify to you that we will have the privilege of hearing the voice of our Savior Jesus Christ through the teachings of those who pray sing and speak to the needs of our day in this conference. As recorded in the book of Acts, Philip the Evangelist taught the gospel to a certain Ethiopian who was a eunuch in charge of all the treasures belonging to the queen of Ethiopia. While returning from worshiping in Jerusalem, he read the book of Isaiah. Compelled by the Spirit, Philip came closer to him and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And the eunuch said, How can I, except some man should guide me? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. The question asked by this Ethiopian man is a reminder of the divine mandate we all have to seek to learn and to teach one another the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, in the context of learning and teaching the gospel, we are sometimes like the Ethiopian. We need the help of a faithful and inspired teacher. And we are sometimes like Philip. We need to teach and strengthen others in their conversion. Our purpose as we seek to learn and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ must be to increase faith in God and in His divine plan of happiness and in Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice and to achieve less conversion. Such increased faith and conversion will help us make and keep covenants with God, thus straightening our desire to follow Jesus and producing a genuine spiritual transformation in us, in other words, transforming us into a new creature, as taught by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Corinthians. This transformation will bring us as more, a more happy, productive, and healthy life and help us to maintain an eternal perspective. Isn't this exactly what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch after he learned about the Savior and was converted to, this, to his gospel, the scripture says that he, quote, went on his way rejoicing, close quote. The commandment to learn the gospel and teach it to one another is not new. It has been constantly repeated from the beginning of human history. On one particular occasion, while Moses and his people were in the plans of Moab, before entering the Promised Land, the Lord inspired him to admonish his people 
concerning their responsibility to learn the statutes and covenants they had received from the Lord and to teach them to their posterity, many of whom had not personally experienced the crossing of the Red Sea or the revelation given on the Mount Sinai. Moses admonished his people, quote, Hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your Father giveth you. Teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. Close quote. Then Moses concluded, saying, quote, Thou shalt keep therefore his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee this day, that ye may go well with thee and with thy children after thee, and that thou mayest prolong thy days upon the earth, which the Lord thy God give thee forever. Close quote. God's prophets have consistently instructed that we need to raise our families in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and in light and truth. President Nelson <clears throat> recently said, quote, In this day of ramping immorality and addictive pornography, parents have a sacred responsibility to teach their children the importance of God and Jesus Christ in their lives. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, the warning of our beloved prophet is a further reminder of our individual responsibility to seek to learn and to teach our families that there is a Father in Heaven who loves us and who has developed a divine plan of, of happiness for His children, that Jesus Christ, His Son, is the Redeemer of the world, and that salvation comes from faith in His name. Our lives need to be rooted upon the rock of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, which might help us individually and as families to have our own spiritual impressions engraved in our hearts, helping us to endure in our faith. You may recall that two disciples of John the Baptist followed Jesus Christ after hearing John witness that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the Messiah. These good men accepted Jesus' invitation to come and see and abode with Him that day. They came to know that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and followed Him for the rest of their lives. Likewise, when we accepted the Savior's invitation to come and see, we need to abide in Him, immersing ourselves in the Scriptures, rejoicing in them, learning His doctrine, and striving to live the way He lived. Only then will we come to know him, Jesus Christ, and recognize His voice, and knowing that as we come unto Him, we believe in Him, we shall never hunger nor thirst. We'll be able to discern the truth at all times, as occurred to those two disciples who abode with Jesus that day. Brothers and sister, sisters, that doesn't happen by chance. Attuning ourselves to the highest influences of godliness is not a simple matter. It requires calling upon God and learning how to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the center of our lives. If we do so, I promise 
that the influence of the Holy Ghost will bring truth to our heart and mind and will bear witness of it, teaching all things. The Ethiopians questioned, How can I understand except some man should guide me? has also a special meaning in the context of our individual responsibility to put the principles of the gospel we have learned into practice in our lives. In the Ethiopian's case, for example, he acted upon the truth he learned from Philip. He asked to be baptized. He came to know that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, our actions must reflect what we learn and teach. We need to show our beliefs through the way we live. The best teacher is a good role model. Teaching something that we truly live can make a difference in the hearts of those we teach. If we desire people, whether that be family or not, to joyfully treasure up the scriptures and the teachings of living apostles and prophets of our day, they need to see our souls delighting in them. Likewise, if we want them to know that President Russell M. Nelson is the prophet, seer, and revelator in our day, they need to see us raise our hands to sustain him and realize that we follow his inspired teachings. As the well-known American saying goes, actions speak louder than words. Maybe some of you are at this exact moment asking yourselves, Elder Suarez, I have been doing all these things and, <clears throat> and have been following this model both individually and as families. But unfortunately, some of my friends or dear ones have distanced themselves from the Lord. What should I do? For those of you who are right now experiencing these feelings of sadness agony, and maybe regret, please know that they are not totally lost, because the Lord knows where they are and is watching over them. Remember, they are His children, too. It is hard to understand all the reasons why some people take another path. The best we can do in these circumstances is just to love and embrace them, pray for their well-being, and seek for the Lord's help to know what to do and say. Sincerely rejoice with them in their successes. Be their friends and look for the good in them. We should never give up on them, but preserve our relationships. Never reject or misjudge them. Just love them. The parable of the prodigal son teaches us that when children come to themselves, they often desire to come home. If that happens with your dear ones, fill your hearts with compassion. Run to them, fall on their neck, and kiss them like the father of the prodigal son did. Ultimately, keep living a worthy life. Be a good example to them of what you believe. And draw closer to your Savior, Jesus Christ. He knows and understands our deep sorrows and pains. And He will bless your efforts and dedication to your dear ones, if not in this life, in the next life. Remember, brothers and sisters, always that hope is an important part of the gospel plan. Throughout many years of service in the Church, 
I have seen faithful members who have consistently applied these principles in their lives. This is the case <clears throat> of a single mother whom I, ref I will refer to as Mary. Sadly, Mary went through a tragic divorce. At that point in time, Mary <clears throat> recognized that her most critical decisions related to her family would be spiritual. Would praying, scripture study, fasting, and church and temple attendance continue to be important to her? Mary had always been faithful, and at that critical juncture, she decided to cling to what she already knew to be true. She found strength in the family, a proclamation to the world, which, among many wonderful principles, teaches that parents have a sacred duty to rear their children in love and righteousness and to teach them to always observe God's commandments. She continually searched for answers from the Lord and shared them with her four children in every family setting. They frequently discussed the gospel and shared their experiences and testimonies with one another. Despite the sorrows they went through, her children developed a love for Christ's gospel and a desire to serve and share it with others. Three of them faithfully served full-time missions, and the youngest is now serving in South America. Her oldest daughter, who I know pretty well, who is now married and strong in her faith, shared, I quote, I never felt like my mom raised us alone because the Lord was always in our home. As she bore her witness of him to us, we each began to turn to him with our own questions. I am so grateful she brought the gospel to life. Brothers and sisters, this good mother was able to make her home a center of spiritual learning. Similar to the Ethiopian's question, Mary asked herself several times, How can my children learn except a mother should guide them? My dear companions in the gospel, I testify to you that when we earnestly, heartily, firmly, and sincerely seek to learn the gospel of Jesus Christ and teach it to one another, with real purpose and under the influence of the Spirit, these teachings may transform hearts and inspire a desire to live according to the truths of God. I testify that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He is the Redeemer, and He lives. I know He directs His Church through prophets, seers, and revelators. I also testify to you that God lives that He loves us, He wants us back in His presence, all of us. He listens to our prayers. I bear my testimony of these truths in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I once saw a sign in a store window that said, Happiness. $15. I was so curious to know how much happiness I could buy for $15 that I went inside to see. 
What I found was a lot of cheap trinkets and souvenirs. Not one thing I saw could possibly bring me the type of happiness that the sign implied. Over the years, I've thought many times about that sign and how easy it can be to look for happiness in items that are cheap or temporary. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are blessed to know how and where true happiness is found. It is found in carefully living the gospel established by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and in striving to become more like Him. We have a dear friend who was a train engineer. One day while he was driving a train on his route, he spotted a car stopped on the track ahead of him. He quickly realized that the car was stuck and unable to cross the track. He immediately put the train in emergency mode, which engaged the brakes on each boxcar that extended three-quarters of a mile behind the engine, carrying a load of 6,500 tons. There was no physical chance that the train would be able to stop before it hit the car, which it did. Fortunately for the people in the car, they heard the warning of the train whistle and escaped from the car before the impact. As the engineer spoke with the investigating police officer, an angry woman approached them. She shouted that she had seen the whole incident and then testified that the engineer did not even try to swerve out of the way to miss the car. Obviously, if the engineer had been able to swerve and leave the tracks to avoid an accident, he and his entire train would have been lost in a derailment, and the train's forward progress would have come to an abrupt stop. Fortunately for him, the rails of the tracks on which his train ran kept the wheels of the train snugly moving towards its destination, regardless of the obstacle in his way. Fortunately for us, we too are on a track, a covenant path we committed to when we were baptized as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although we may encounter occasional obstacles along the way, this path will keep us moving towards our prized eternal destination if we stay firmly on it. The vision of the Tree of Life shows how the effects of casualness can lead us away from the covenant path. Consider that the iron rod and the straight and narrow path, or the covenant path, led directly to the Tree of Life, where all the blessings provided by our Savior and His Atonement are available to the faithful. Also seen in the vision was a river of water representing the filthiness of the world. The scriptures describe that this river ran along the path, yet passed only near the tree, not to it. The world is laden with distractions that can deceive even the elect, causing them to be casual in living their covenants thus leading them near the tree, but not to it. If we are not careful in living our covenants with exactness, 
our casual efforts may eventually lead us into forbidden paths or to join with those who have already entered the great and spacious building. If not careful, we may even drown in the depths of a filthy river. There is a careful way and a casual way to do everything, including living the gospel. As we consider our commitment to the Savior, are we careful or casual? Because of our mortal nature, don't we sometimes rationalize our behavior, at times referring to our actions as being in the gray or mixing good with something that's not so good? Anytime we say, however, except, or but, when it applies to following the counsels of our prophet leaders or living the gospel carefully, we are in fact saying, that counsel does not apply to me. We can rationalize all we want, but the fact is, there is not a right way to do the wrong thing. The U theme for 2019 is taken from John 14, verse 15, where the Lord instructs, If ye love me, keep my commandments. If we love him as we claim, can't we show that love by being a little more careful in living his commandments? Being careful in living the gospel does not necessarily mean being formal or stuffy. What it does mean is being appropriate in our thoughts and behavior as disciples of Jesus Christ. As we ponder the difference between careful and casual in our gospel living, here are some thoughts to consider. Are we careful in our Sabbath day worship and in our preparation to partake of the sacrament each week? Could we be more careful in our prayers and scripture study or be more actively engaged in Come Follow Me for individuals and families? Are we careful in our temple worship? And do we carefully and deliberately, deliberately live the covenants we made both at baptism and at the temple? Are we careful in our appearance and modest in our dress, especially in sacred places and circumstances? Are we careful in how we wear the sacred temple garments? Or do the fashions of the world dictate a more casual attitude? Are we careful in how we minister to others and in how we fulfill our callings in the Church? Or are we indifferent or casual in our call to serve? Are we careful or casual in what we read and what we watch on TV and on our mobile devices? And are we careful in our language, or do we casually embrace the crude and vulgar? The For the Strength of Youth pamphlet contains standards that, when followed carefully, will bring rich blessings and help us stay on the covenant path. Although it was written for the benefit of the youth, its standards do not expire when we leave the Young Men and Young Women programs. They apply to each of us all the time. A review of these standards may prompt other ways we can be more careful in our gospel living. We do not lower our standards to fit in or to make someone else feel comfortable. We are disciples of Jesus Christ, 
And as such, we are about elevating others, lifting them to a higher, holier place where they, too, can reap greater blessings. I invite each of us to seek the guidance of the Holy Ghost, to know what adjustments we need to make in our lives to be more carefully aligned with our covenants. I also plead with you not to be critical of others making the same journey. Judgment is mine, saith the Lord. We are each in the process of growth and change. The story told in the Book of Mormon about the apostate Amlicites is interesting to me as a way of noting to others that they were no longer associated with Jesus Christ and His Church, they put a distinct mark of red on their foreheads for all to see. In an opposite way, and as disciples of Jesus Christ, how do we mark ourselves? Can others easily see His image in our countenance and know who we represent by the way we carefully conduct our lives? As a covenant people, we are not meant to blend in with the rest of the world. We have been called a peculiar people. What a compliment! As the influences of the world increasingly embrace the evil, we must strive with all diligence to stay firmly on the path that leads us safely to our Savior widening the distance between our covenant living and worldly influences. As I reflect upon obtaining lasting happiness, I realize that sometimes we do find ourselves in the gray. Mists of darkness are inevitable as we journey along the covenant path. Temptation and casualness can cause us to subtly divert our course into the darkness of the world and away from the covenant path. For the times when this might happen, our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, has urged us to get back on the covenant path and to do so quickly. How grateful I am for the gift of repentance and for the power of the Savior's Atonement. It's impossible to live a perfect life. Only one man was able to live perfectly while dwelling on this celestial planet. That was Jesus Christ. Although we may not be perfect, brothers and sisters, we can be worthy. Worthy to partake of the sacrament, worthy of temple blessings, and worthy to receive personal revelation. King Benjamin testified of the happiness and the blessings that come to those who carefully follow the Savior. And moreover, I would desire that ye should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God, for behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. Can happiness be bought with $15? No, it can't. Deep and lasting happiness comes by intentionally and carefully living the gospel of Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Amen. An important and comforting doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that our Heavenly Father has perfect love for His children. Because of that perfect love, He blesses us not only according to our desires and needs, but also according to His infinite wisdom. As simply stated by the prophet Nephi, I know that God loveth His children. One aspect of that perfect love is our Heavenly Father's involvement in the details of our lives even when we may not be aware of it or understand it. We seek the Father's divine guidance and help through heartfelt, earnest prayer. When we honor our covenants and strive to be more like our Savior, we are entitled to a constant stream of divine guidance through the influence and inspiration of the Holy Ghost. The scriptures teach us, For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him, and he knoweth all things for all things are present before his eyes. The Prophet Mormon is an example of this. He did not live to see the results of his work, yet he understood that the Lord was carefully leading him along. When he felt inspired to include the small plates of Nephi with his record, Mormon wrote, And I do this for a wise purpose, for thus it whispereth me, according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord which is in me. And now I do not know all things, but the Lord knoweth all things which are to come. Wherefore, he worketh in me to do according to his will. Although Mormon did not know of the future loss of the 116 manuscript pages, the Lord did, and prepared a way to overcome that obstacle long before it occurred. The Father is aware of us, knows our needs, and will help us perfectly. Sometimes that help is given in the very moment, or at least soon after we ask for divine help. Sometimes our most worthy and earnest desires are not answered in the way we hope, but we find that God has greater blessings in store, and sometimes our righteous desires are not granted in this life. I will illustrate through three different accounts the ways our Father in Heaven may answer our earnest petitions to Him. Our youngest son was called to serve as a missionary in the France-Paris Mission. In preparation to serve, we went with him to purchase the usual shirts, suits, ties, socks, and an overcoat. Unfortunately, the overcoat he wanted was not immediately in stock in the size he needed. However, the store clerk indicated that the coat would become available in a few weeks and would be delivered to the Missionary Training Center in Provo prior to our son's departure for France. We paid for the coat and thought nothing more of it. Our son entered the Missionary Training Center in June, and the overcoat was delivered just days before his scheduled departure in August. He did not try on the coat, but hurriedly packed it in his luggage with his other clothing and items. As winter approached in Paris, where our son was serving, he wrote to us that he had pulled out the overcoat, tried it on, but found that it was far too small. We therefore had to deposit extra funds in his bank account so that he could buy another coat in Paris, which he did. With some irritation, I wrote to him and told him to give the first coat away inasmuch as he couldn't use it. We later received this email from him. It is very, very cold here. The wind seems to go right through us, although my new coat is great and quite heavy. I gave my old one to another missionary in our apartment 
who said that he had been praying for a way to get a better coat. He's a convert of several years, and he has only his mom and the missionary who baptized him who are supporting him on his mission. And so the coat was an answer to prayer. So I felt very happy about that. Heavenly Father knew that this missionary who was serving in France some 6,200 miles away from home would urgently need a new overcoat for a cold winter in Paris, but that this missionary would not have the means to buy one. Heavenly Father also knew that our son would receive from the clothing store in Provo, Utah, an overcoat that would be far too small. He knew that these two missionaries would be serving together in Paris and that the coat would be an answer to the humble and earnest prayer of a missionary who had an immediate need. The Savior taught, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. In other situations, when our worthy desires are not granted in the way we had hoped, it may actually be for our ultimate benefit. For example, Joseph was the son of Jacob, and he was envied and hated by his brothers to the point that they plotted Joseph's murder. Instead, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. If ever a person might have felt that his prayers were not answered in the way he had hoped, it could have been Joseph. In reality, his apparent misfortune resulted in great blessings to him and saved his family from starvation. Later, after having become a trusted leader in Egypt, with great faith and wisdom he said to his brothers, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. While in college, our oldest son was hired into a very desirable part-time student job that had the potential to lead to a wonderful permanent job after graduating. He worked hard at this student job for four years, became highly qualified, and was well respected by his co-workers and supervisors. At the end of his senior year, almost as if orchestrated by heaven, at least to our son's way of thinking, the permanent position did open up and he was the leading candidate, with every indication and expectation that indeed he would get the job. Well, he was not hired. None of us could understand it. He had prepared well, interviewed well, was the most qualified candidate, and had prayed with great hope and expectation. He was devastated and crushed, and the entire episode left all of us scratching our heads. Why had God abandoned him in his righteous desire? It wasn't until several years later that the answer became very clear. Had he received the dream job after graduation, he would have missed a critical life-changing opportunity that has now proved to be for his eternal benefit and blessing. God knew the end from the beginning, as He always does, and in this case, the answer to many righteous prayers was no in favor of a far superior outcome. And sometimes the answer to prayer that we so righteously, desperately, and earnestly seek is not given in this life. Sister Patricia Parkinson was born with normal eyesight, but at age seven she began to go blind. At age nine, Pat began attending the Utah Schools for the Deaf and Blind in Ogden, Utah, some 90 miles from her home, necessitating her boarding at the school, which included all of the homesickness that a nine-year-old could possibly experience. By age 11, she'd completely lost her eyesight. 
Pat returned home permanently at age 15 to attend her local high school. She went on to college and graduated with an undergraduate degree in communication disorders and psychology. And after an heroic struggle against doubting university admissions officials, she entered graduate school and completed a master's degree in speech-language pathology. Pat now works with 53 elementary school students and supervises four speech-language technicians in her school district. She owns her own home and her own automobile, which friends and family members drive when Pat needs transportation. At age 10, Pat was scheduled to have yet another medical procedure to address her diminishing eyesight. Her parents had always told her exactly what was going to happen in terms of her medical care, but for some reason they did not tell her about this particular procedure. When her parents did tell her that the procedure had been scheduled, Pat, in the words of her mother, was a mess. Pat ran to the other room but came back later and said to her parents with some indignation, Let me tell you what. I know it, God knows it, and you might as well know it too. I am going to be blind the rest of my life. Several years ago, Pat traveled to California to visit family members who were living there. While outside with her three-year-old nephew, he said to her, Aunt Pat, why don't you just ask Heavenly Father to give you new eyes? Because if you ask Heavenly Father, He will give you whatever you want. You just have to ask Him. Pat said she was taken aback by the question, but responded, Well, sometimes Heavenly Father doesn't work like that. Sometimes He needs you to learn something. And so He doesn't give you everything you want. Sometimes you have to wait. Heavenly Father and the Savior know best what is good for us and what we need. So they aren't going to grant you everything you want in the moment you want it. I've known Pat for many years and recently told her that I admired the fact that she's always positive and happy. She responded, well, you have not been at home with me, have you? (laughs) I have my moments. I've had rather severe bouts of depression, and I've cried a lot. However, she added, from the time I started losing my sight, it was strange, but I knew that Heavenly Father and the Savior were with with my family and me. We handled it the best way we could, and in my opinion, we handled it the right way. I have ended up being a successful enough person, and generally I have been a happy person. I remember his hand being in everything. To those who ask me if I am angry because I am blind, I respond, Who would I be angry with? Heavenly Father is in this with me. I am not alone. He is with me all the time. In this case, Pat's desire to regain her sight will not be granted in this life. But her motto, learned from her father, is, This too shall pass. President Henry B. Eyring stated, The Father is at this moment aware of you, your feelings, and the spiritual and temporal needs of everyone around you. This great and comforting truth can be found in the three experiences I have recounted. Brothers and sisters, sometimes our prayers are answered quickly with the outcome we hope for. Sometimes our prayers are not answered in the way we hope for. Yet with time, we learn that God had greater blessings prepared for us than we initially anticipated. And sometimes our righteous petitions to God will not be granted in this life. As Elder Neil A. Maxwell said, faith also includes trust in God's timing. We have the assurance that in His own way and in His own time, Heavenly Father will bless us and resolve all of our concerns, injustices, and disappointments. To again quote King Benjamin, 
And moreover, I would desire that ye should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. O remember, remember that these things are true, for the Lord God hath spoken it. I know that God hears our prayers. I know that as an all-knowing, loving Father, He answers our prayers perfectly according to His infinite wisdom and in ways that will be to our ultimate benefit and blessing. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The congregation will now join the choir in singing Redeemer of Israel. Following the singing, we will hear from Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. The choir will then sing Dearest Children, God is Near You. Bishop W. Christopher Waddell, second counselor in the presiding bishopric, will then speak to us. This is the 189th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
My dear brothers and sisters, <clears throat> dear friends, last month the twelve were invited by our dear prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, to travel with him to the dedication of the Rome-Italy Temple. While traveling, I thought about the Apostle Paul and his journeys. In his day, to get from Jerusalem to Rome, it would have taken about 40 days. Today, in one of my favorite airplanes, it takes less than three hours. <laughs> Bible scholars believe that Paul was in Rome when he wrote several of his letters, which were key in strengthening Church members then as well as today. Paul and the other members of the ancient Church, the early-day saints, were intimately familiar with sacrifice. Many were severely persecuted, even unto death. In the last 200 years, the members of the restored Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, have also experienced persecution in many forms. But in spite of that persecution, and sometimes because of it, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has continued to grow and is now found all across the globe. However, before we bake a cake, throw confetti, and congratulate ourselves on this remarkable success, we'd, we would do well to put that growth into perspective. There are roughly 7.5 billion people in the world compared to some 16 million members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a very small flock indeed. Meanwhile, the numbers of Christian believers in some parts of the world are shrinking. Even in the Lord's restored Church, while overall membership continues to grow, there are too many who do not claim the blessings of regular Church participation. In other words, wherever you are on this earth, there are plenty of opportunities to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with people you meet, study, and live with, or work and socialize with. During this past year, I have had the exciting opportunity to be deeply involved with the worldwide missionary activities of the Church. I have often pondered and prayed about the Savior's great commission to His disciples, us, His children, to go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. I wrestled with the question, how can we, as members and disciples of Christ, best fulfill that great commission in our daily lives. Today I invite you to ponder that same question in your heart and mind. Church leaders have emphasized the claim and the clarion call every member and missionary for decades. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ, both in past times as well as in ours, have enthusiastically and joyfully shared the gospel with friends and acquaintances. Their hearts are aflame with the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
and they sincerely want others to experience the same joy they have found in the Savior's gospel. Some members of the Church seem to have a gift for this. They love being ambassadors of the gospel. They boldly and gladly serve and lead the work as member missionaries. However, others of us are more hesitant. When missionary work is discussed in Church meetings, heads are slowly lowered until submerged behind the pool, eyes focused on the scriptures or closed in deep meditation to avoid eye contact with other members. <laughs> Why is this? Maybe we feel guilty for not doing more to share the gospel. Perhaps we feel uncertain about how to do it. Or we might feel timid about going outside our comfort zone. I understand this. But remember, the Lord has never required expert, flawless missionary efforts. Instead, the Lord requires the heart and a willing mind. If you are already happily doing missionary work, please continue and stand as one example to others. The Lord will bless you. If, however, you feel that you have been dragging your feet when it comes to sharing the gospel message, may I suggest five guilt-free things anyone can do to participate in the Savior's great commission to help gather Israel. First, draw close to God. The first great commandment is to love God. It is a primary reason why we are on this earth. Ask yourself, do I really believe in Heavenly Father? Do I love and trust Him? The closer you draw to our Heavenly Father, the more His light and joy will shine from within you. Others will notice that there is something unique and special about you, and they will ask about it. Second, fill your heart with love for others. This is the second great commandment. Try to truly feel and see everyone around you as a child of God. Minister to them regardless of whether their names appear on your ministering sister or brother list. Laugh with them, rejoice with them, weep with them, respect them, heal, lift, and strengthen them. Strive to emulate the love of Christ and have compassion for others, even to those who are unkind to you, who mock you and wish to cause you harm. Love them and treat them as fellow children of Heavenly Father. Third, strive to walk the path of discipleship. As your love for God and His children deepens, so does your commitment to follow Jesus Christ. You learn about His way by feasting upon His Word and heeding and applying the teachings of modern prophets and apostles. You grow in confidence and courage to follow His way as you communicate with Heavenly Father with a teachable, a humble heart. Walking the path of discipleship takes practice. Each day, little by little, grace for grace, 
line upon line, sometimes two steps forward and one step back. The important thing is that you don't give up. Keep trying to get it right. You will eventually become better, happier, and more authentic. Talking with others about your faith will become normal and natural. In fact, the gospel will be such an essential, precious part of your lives that it would feel unnatural not to talk about it with others. That may not happen immediately. It is a lifelong effort, but it will happen. Fourth, sharing what is in your heart. I'm not asking that you stand on the street corner with a megaphone and shout out Book Mormon verses. What I'm asking is that you always Look for opportunities to bring up your faith in natural and normal ways with people, both in person as well as online. I'm asking that you stand as a witness of the power of the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Because the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. You can be confident, courageous, and humble as you share it. Confidence, courage, and humility may seem like contradictory attributes, but they are not. They reflect the Savior's invitation not to hide gospel values and principles under the bushel, but to let your light shine that your good works may glorify your Father in heaven. There are many normal and natural ways to do this, from daily acts of kindness to personal testimonials on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, to simple conversations with people you meet. This year, we are learning from the New Testament in our homes and Sunday school. What a marvelous opportunity to invite friends and neighbors to church and your homes to learn about the Savior with you. Share with them the Gospel Library app where they can find Come Follow Me. If you know young people and their families, give them the For the Strength of Youth booklet and invite them to come and see how our young people strive to live by those principles. If someone asks about your weekend, don't hesitate to talk about what you experience at church. Tell about the little children who stood in front of the congregation and sang with eagerness how they are trying to be like Jesus. Talk about the group of youth who spend time helping the elderly in rest homes to compile personal histories. Talk about the recent change in our Sunday meeting schedule and how it blesses your family. Or explain why we emphasize that this is the Church of Jesus Christ and that we are Latter-day Saints just as the members of the ancient church were also called saints. In whatever ways seem 
natural and normal to you. Share with people why Jesus Christ and His Church are so important to you. Invite them to come and see. Then encourage them to come and help. There are numerous opportunities for people to help in our church. And pray not only for the missionaries to find the elect. Pray daily with all your heart that you will find those who will come and see, come and help, and come and stay. Keep the full-time missionaries in the loop. They are like angels ready to help. As you share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, do so with love and patience. If we interact with people with the sole expectation that they soon will done, don a white jumpsuit and ask for direction to the nearest baptismal font, we're doing it wrong. Some who come and see will perhaps never join the church. Some will at a later time. That is their choice. But that doesn't change our love for them. It doesn't change our enthusiastic efforts to continue inviting individuals and families to come and see and come and help and come and stay. Fifth, trust the Lord to work His miracles. We heard a wonderful message from Elder Hales about this. Understand that it's not your job to convert people. That is the role of the Holy Ghost. Your role is to share what is in your heart and live consistent with your beliefs. So don't be discouraged if someone does not accept the gospel message immediately. It is not a personal failure. That is between the individual and Heavenly Father. Yours is to love God and love your neighbors, his children. Believe, love, do. Follow this path and God will work miracles through you to bless his precious children. These five suggestions will help you to do what disciples of Jesus Christ have done since ancient times. His gospel and his church are an important part of your life and of who you are and what you do. Therefore, invite others to come and see, come and help, and God will do his saving work and they will come and stay. But you might ask, what if I do all this and people react poorly? What if they critical are critical about the church? What if they unfriend me. <laughs> yes, that may happen. Since ancient times, disciples of Jesus Christ have often been persecuted. The Apostle Peter said, Rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings. The early saints rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Remember, the Lord works in his mysterious ways. 
It may be that by your Christ-like response to rejection, a hardened heart could be softened. As an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, I bless you with the confidence to be a living testimonial of gospel values, with the courage to always be recognized as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the humility to assist in His work as an expression of your love for Heavenly Father and His children. My dear friends, you will rejoice in knowing that you are a significant part in the long-foretold gathering of Israel, preparing Christ's coming in power and great glory with all the holy angels. Heavenly Father knows you. The Lord loves you. God will bless you. This work is ordained of Him. You can do this. We can all do this together. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Approximately 18 months ago, in the fall of 2017, my 64-year-old brother Mike informed me that he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He also told me that he had received a priesthood blessing from his home teacher and that he had met with his bishop. He later texted me a picture of the Oakland, California temple taken from the hospital where he was receiving treatment with the caption, Look what I can see from my hospital room. I was as surprised by his comments about home teachers, priesthood blessings, bishops, and temples as I was about the cancer. You see, Mike, a priest in the Aaronic priesthood, hadn't regularly attended church for close to 50 years. As a family, we were almost as intrigued with his spiritual progress as we were with his progress in fighting the cancer, largely due to his now frequent questions about the Book of Mormon, the sealing power, and life after death. As the months passed and the cancer spread, a need for additional and more specialized treatment eventually brought Mike to Utah and the Huntsman Cancer Center. Shortly after his arrival, Mike was visited by John Holbrook, the ward mission leader of the ward that served the care facility where he was now living. John commented that it was obvious to me that Mike was a son of God and that they quickly developed a bond and a friendship which led to John becoming Mike's de facto ministering brother. There was an immediate invitation to have the missionaries visit, which my brother politely declined. But a month into their friendship, John asked again, explaining to Mike, I think you'd enjoy hearing the gospel message. This time the invitation was accepted, leading to meetings with the missionaries as well as visits with Bishop John Sharp, whose conversations eventually led Mike to receiving his patriarchal blessing 57 years after his baptism. In early December of last year, following months of procedures, Mike decided to stop the cancer treatments, which were causing severe side effects and just to let nature take its course. We were informed by his doctor that Mike had approximately three months to live. In the meantime, the gospel questions continued, as did the visit and support of his local priesthood leaders. On our visits with Mike, we often saw an open copy of the Book of Mormon on the bedstand as we discussed the restoration of the gospel, priesthood keys, temple ordinances, and even the eternal nature of man. By mid-December, with his patriarchal blessing in hand, Mike actually appeared to be gaining strength, and his prognosis of at least another three months seemed likely. We even made plans for him to join us for Christmas, for New Year's and beyond. On December 16th, I received an unexpected call from Bishop Sharp, who informed me that he and the stake president had interviewed Mike, had found him worthy to receive the Melchizedek priesthood, and asked when I would be available to participate. The ordinance was scheduled for that Friday, December 21st. When the day arrived, my wife Carol and I arrived at the care facility and were immediately met in the hallway near his room and informed that Mike had no pulse. We entered the room to find the patriarch, his bishop, and his stake president already waiting. And then Mike opened his eyes. He recognized me and acknowledged that he could hear me and was ready to receive the priesthood. Fifty years after Mike had been ordained a priest in the Aaronic priesthood, I had the privilege, assisted by his local leaders, to confer the Melchizedek priesthood and ordain my brother to the office of elder. Five hours later, Mike passed away, crossing the veil to meet our parents as a holder of the Melchizedek Priesthood.
Just one year ago, a call was extended by President Russell M. Nelson for each of us to care for our brothers and sisters in a higher, holier way. Speaking of the Savior, President Nelson taught that because it is His Church, we as His servants will minister to the One just as He did. We will minister in His name, with His power and authority, and with His loving kindness. In response to that invitation from a prophet of God, remarkable efforts to minister to the One are taking place all over the world in both coordinated efforts as members faithfully fulfill their ministering assignments, as well as what I'll call impromptu ministering, as so many demonstrate Christ-like love in response to unexpected opportunities. In our own family, we witnessed up close this type of ministering. John, who was Mike's friend, ministering brother, and a former mission president, used to tell his missionaries that if someone is on a list that says not interested, don't give up. People change. He then told us, Mike changed mightily. John was first a friend, providing frequent encouragement and support. But his ministering didn't stop at friendly visits. John knew that a minister is more than a friend and that friendship is magnified as we minister. It isn't necessary for someone to be suffering, like my brother, from a life-threatening disease in order to be in need of ministering service. Those needs come in a variety of shapes, sizes, and conditions. A single parent, a less active couple, a struggling teen, an overwhelmed mother, a trial of faith, financial health or marriage issues. The list is almost endless. However, like Mike, no one is too far gone, and it is never too late for the Savior's loving reach. We are taught on the ministering website of the Church that while there are many purposes of ministering, our efforts should be guided by the desire to help others achieve a deeper individual conversion and become more like the Savior. Elder Neil L. Anderson said it this way, A person with a good heart can help someone fix a tire, take a roommate to the doctor, have lunch with someone who is sad, or smile and say hello to brighten the day. But a follower of the first commandment will naturally add to these important acts of service. In modeling our ministering after Jesus Christ, it is important to remember that His efforts to love, to lift, to serve, and bless had a higher goal than meeting the immediate need. He clearly knew of their day-to-day needs and had compassion on their current suffering as He healed, fed, forgave, and taught. But he wanted to do more than take care of today. He wanted those around him to follow him, to know him, and to reach their divine potential. As we seek to minister just as he did, we will be provided opportunities to forget self and lift others. These opportunities may often be inconvenient and test our desire to become more like the Master, whose greatest service of all, his infinite atonement, was anything but convenient. In Matthew, in chapter 25, we're reminded how the Lord feels about us when, like Him, we're sensitive to the struggles, the trials, and challenges faced by so many, but that can often be overlooked. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. 
Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Whether we serve as ministering brothers or sisters, or simply when we are made aware of someone in need, we are encouraged to seek the guidance and direction of the Spirit and then act. We may wonder how best to serve, but the Lord knows, and through His Spirit we will be directed in our efforts. Like Nephi, who was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which he should do, we will also be led by the Spirit as we strive to become instruments in the Lord's hands to bless His children. As we seek the guidance of the Spirit and trust the Lord, we will be placed in situations and circumstances where we can act and bless—in other words, minister. There may be other times when we recognize a need but we feel inadequate to respond, assuming that what we have to offer is insufficient. To do just as He did, however, is to minister by giving what we are capable of giving and to trust that the Lord will magnify our efforts to bless our fellow travelers on this mortal journey. For some, it may be giving the gift of time and their talents. For others, it may be a kind word or a strong back. And although we may feel that our efforts are inadequate, President Dallin H. Oaks shared an important principle regarding small and simple. He taught that small and simple acts are powerful because they invite the companionship of the Holy Ghost, a companion that blesses both the giver and the receiver. Knowing that he would soon die, my brother Mike commented, It's amazing how pancreatic cancer can make you focus on what's most important. Thanks to wonderful men and women who saw a need, who did not judge, and ministered like the Savior, it wasn't too late for Mike. For some, change may come sooner. For others, perhaps not until they pass the veil. However, we must remember that it is never too late and no one has ever wandered so far from the path that they are beyond the reach of the infinite Atonement of Jesus Christ, which is limitless in its duration and scope. In last October's General Conference, Elder Dale G. Renlund taught that no matter how long we have been off the path, the moment we decide to change, God helps us return. That decision to change, however, is often the result of an invitation, such as, I think you'd enjoy hearing the gospel message. Just as it is never too late for the Savior, it is never too soon for us to extend an invitation. This Easter season provides us once again a wonderful opportunity to reflect on the great atoning sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ and what He did for each of us at such a tremendous cost, a cost that He Himself declared caused Him, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain. Nevertheless, he states, I partook and finished my preparations under the children of men. I testify that because he finished, there is always hope. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We thank all who have spoken to us thus far and expressed gratitude to the choir for the beautiful music they have provided this morning. 
The choir will now sing, I am a child of God. Our concluding speaker for this session will be President Henry B. Eyring, second counselor in the First Presidency. Following his remarks, the choir will close the meeting by singing, Rejoice, the Lord is King. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Wilford W. Anderson of the Seventy.
My dear brothers and sisters, I am grateful to have been invited to speak to you in this 189th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On this date in 1830, Joseph Smith organized the Church under the direction of the Lord. It was done in the Whitmer family home in Fayette, New York. There were six members and about 50 other interested people there that day. Although I don't know what the Prophet Joseph said or how he looked when he stood before that little group, but I know what those people with faith in Jesus Christ felt. They felt the Holy Ghost, and they felt that they were in a holy place. They surely felt that they were united as one. That miraculous feeling in a home is what we all want in our homes. It is a feeling that comes from being, as Paul described, spiritually minded. My purpose today is to teach what I know of how we can qualify for that feeling more often and invite it, and invite it to last longer in our families. As you know from experience, that is not easy to do. Contention, pride, and sin have to be kept at bay. The pure love of Christ must come into the hearts of those in our family. Adam and Eve, Lehi and Sariah, and other parents we know from Scripture found that to be a hard challenge. Yet there are encouraging examples of sustained felicity in families and homes to reassure us. And those examples let us see the way it can happen for us and our families. You remember the account from 4th Nephi, open quote, and it came to pass that there was no contention in the land because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people. And there were no envyings, nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murders, nor any matter of lasciviousness. And surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. There were no robbers nor murderers, neither were there Lamanites nor any manner of ites, but they were in one, the children of Christ and heirs to the kingdom of God. And how blessed were they! For the Lord did bless them in all their doings, yea, and they were blessed and prospered until a hundred and ten years had passed away, and the first generation from Christ had passed away. and. There was no contention in all the land." Close quote. 
As you know, that happy time did not endure forever. The account in 4th Nephi describes the eventual symptoms of spiritual decline among a group of good people. It is a pattern that has appeared over the ages to entire peoples and congregations and, most sadly, in families. By studying that pattern, we can see how we might protect and even increase the feelings of love in our family. Here is the pattern of decline that appeared after 200 years of living in the perfect peace the gospel brings. Pride crept in. The people stopped sharing what they had with each other. They began to see themselves in classes above or below each other. They began to diminish in their faith in Jesus Christ. They began to hate. They began to commit all kinds of sin. Now, wise parents will be alert enough to notice those symptoms when they appear among their family members. They will, of course, be concerned, but they will know that the underlying cause is the influence of Satan trying to lead good people down a path to sin and thus to lose the influence of the Holy Ghost. So the wise parent will see that opportunity lies in leading each child and themselves to accept more fully the Lord's invitation to come unto Him. You could have limited success by calling a child to repent, for instance, of pride. You might try persuading children to share what they have more graciously. You could ask them to stop feeling they are better than someone else in the family. But then you come to the symptom described as they began to diminish in their faith in Jesus Christ. There is the key to leading your family to rise to that spiritual place you want for them and for you to be there with them. As you help them grow in faith that Jesus Christ is their loving Redeemer, they will feel a desire to repent. As they do, humility will begin to replace pride. As they begin to feel what the Lord has given them, they will want to share more graciously and generously. Rivalry for prominence or recognition will diminish. Hate will be driven out by love. And finally, like it did for the people converted by King Benjamin, the desire to do good will fortify them against temptation to sin. King Benjamin's people testified that they had no more disposition to do evil. So, building faith in Jesus Christ is the beginning of reversing any spiritual decline in your family and in your home. That faith is more likely to bring repentance than your preaching against each symptom of spiritual decline. 
You will best lead by example. Family members and others must see you growing in your own faith in Jesus Christ and in His gospel. You have recently been provided great help. Parents in the Church have been blessed with an inspired curriculum for families and individuals. As you use it, you will build your faith and the faith of your children in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith in the Savior has grown as you followed President Russell M. Nelson's suggestion to reread the Book of Mormon. You marked passages and words that referred to the Savior. Your faith in Jesus Christ grew. But like a new plant, such faith in Jesus Christ will wither unless you find continued resolve to ponder and pray to increase it. Your example of growing in faith may not be followed by all members of your family now, but take heart from the experience of Alma the Younger. In his painful need for repentance and forgiveness, he remembered his father's faith in Jesus Christ. Your children may remember your faith in the Savior at a moment when they desperately need repentance. Alma said of such a moment, open quote, And it came to pass that as I was thus racked with torment, while I was harrowed up by the memory of my many sins, behold, I remembered also to have heard my father prophesy unto the people concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, a Son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. Now as my mind caught hold upon this thought, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness and am encircled by, by the everlasting chains of death. And now behold, when I thought this, I could remember my pains no more. Yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more." Close quote. In addition to your example of growing in faith, your praying as a family can play a crucial part in making home a sacred place. One person is usually chosen as voice to pray for the family when the prayer is clearly to God in behalf of the people kneeling and listening. Faith grows in all of them. They can feel expressions of love for Heavenly Father and for the Savior. And when the person who prays mentions those who are kneeling in that circle, who are in need, all can feel love for them and for each member of the family. Even when family members are not living in the home, prayer can build bonds of love. Prayer in the family can reach across the world. More than once, I have learned that a family member far away was praying at the same moment for the same thing as I was. For me, the old saying, the family that prays together stays together, could be expanded to the family that prays together is together, even when they are far apart, because none of us is perfect and feelings are easily hurt. 
Families can become sacred sanctuaries only as we repent early and sincerely. Parents can set an example. Harsh words or unkind thoughts can be repented of quickly and sincerely. A simple, I'm sorry, can heal wounds and invite both forgiveness and love. The prophet Joseph Smith was a model for us as he dealt with vicious attacks with traitors and even with disagreements in his family. He forgave quickly. Even though he knew the attacker might attack again, he asked for forgiveness and he gave it freely. The sons of Mosiah were determined to offer the gospel to everyone. This desire came from their personal experience with repentance. They could not bear the thought of any person suffering the effects of sin as they had. So they faced years of rejection, hardship, and danger to offer the gospel of Jesus Christ to their enemies. In the process, they found joy in the many who repented and experienced the joy of forgiveness through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Our family members will grow in their desire to share the gospel as they feel the joy of forgiveness. That can come even as they renew covenants when they partake of the sacrament. The missionary spirit will grow in our homes as children and parents feel the joy of forgiveness in the sacrament service. By their example of reverence, both parents and children can help each other feel that joy. That joy can go far in turning our homes into missionary training centers. All might not serve missions, but all will feel the desire to share the gospel, which has brought them to feel forgiveness and peace. And whether currently serving full-time or not, all can feel joy in offering the gospel to others. Both for parents and children, the temple is the best opportunity to gain a feeling for and a love of heavenly places. That is especially true when the children are young. Children are born with the light of Christ. Even a baby can feel that a temple is sacred. Because parents love their little children, the temple represents for them the hope that they can have their children to love in their eternal family forever. Some of you have photographs of temples in your homes. As temples are being added across the earth, it is possible for many parents to visit temple grounds with their families. A few may even be able to attend open houses when temples are built. Parents can ask children how they felt to be near or in a temple. Every parent can bear testimony of what a temple has meant to him or her. President Ezra Tav Benson, who loved temples, spoke often of watching his mother carefully press her temple clothing. He spoke of his memory as a boy watching his family as they left his home to attend the temple. When he was the president of the church, he attended the temple the same day each week. He always did the temple work for an ancestor. It came largely 
from the example of his parents. You will find some of your greatest joys in your efforts to make your home a place of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a place that is permeated with love, the pure love of Christ. The restoration of the gospel started with a humble question pondered in a humble home, and it can continue in each of our homes as we continue to establish and practice gospel principles there. This has been my hope and my deepest desire since I was a little boy. You have all had glimpses of such homes. Many of you have, with the Lord's help, created them. Some have tried with full heart for that blessing, yet it has not been granted. My promise to you is one that a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles once made to me. I had said to him that because of choices some in our extended family had made, I doubted that we could be together in the world to come. He said, as well as I can remember, you are worrying about the wrong problem. You just live worthy of the celestial kingdom, and the family arrangements will be more wonderful than anything you can imagine. I believe that he would extend that happy hope to any of us in mortality who have done all we can to qualify ourselves and our family members for eternal life. I know that Heavenly Father's plan is a plan of happiness. I testify that His plan makes possible for each of us who has done the best we can to be sealed in a family forever. I know that the priesthood keys restored to Joseph Smith were passed on in an unbroken line to President Russell Marion Nelson. Those keys make possible the sealing of families today. I know that Heavenly Father loves us, His spirit children with a perfect love. I know that because of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, we can repent, be cleansed, and become worthy to live in loving families forever with our Heavenly Father and with His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. I so testify this is true in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
our Heavenly Father, we do rejoice. We rejoice in our knowledge that Thou art our Father. We rejoice in our faith in Thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and in the great hope that that brings to all of us. We rejoice in the restoration of Thy kingdom, Thy gospel, in this last dispensation, in the Prophet Joseph Smith. We rejoice that we have a prophet today. We love President Russell M. Nelson, and we sustain him with all of our hearts. We rejoice in the spirit that we have felt here together, all the while remembering those who are in special need here and afar throughout the world. Our love for Thee, Father, turns our hearts to them. Please be with them and be with us that we can reach out as never before to befriend those who need friendship and to strengthen those who need support. Bless us that this spirit of love and hope and rejoicing that we have felt here this morning will remain with us through the remainder of this general conference and beyond. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the 189th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music was provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. <laughs>